Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Natalie Cook to tell us all about her book titled Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia, uh, just published in 2023 from Verso. This is a really interesting book that, as you're going to hear, has quite a lot of things in it to help us understand the much more entangled than I had expected history between Arizona in particular and the American Southwest um, and a bunch of places in the Middle East, uh, what we now call the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and understanding the links conceptually, intellectually, in terms of personnel, in terms of technology that have linked these two regions for much, much longer than I certainly suspected before reading the book. So Natalie, I'm so pleased that you're here to tell us all about this fascinating in history. Yeah, thank you for the wonderful invitation. Before we dive into the historical sections of the book, think about what that means for the present and maybe even look ahead to the future, could you introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this? Sure. Uh, so I, as, as you said already, I'm a geography um, professor and I've been I, I've been primarily understanding myself to be a political geographer, uh, but I grew up in Tucson, Arizona in the U.S. desert southwest. And so I'd always been attending to issues about water, desert environments, the sort of physical geography of, of deserts. But because I sort of had always classified deserts in my head as as a physical geography set of questions, I hadn't really considered the political geography pieces of that. Uh, And so as I started to do research in the other parts of the world where most of my research is conducted, previously in Central Asia and Kazakhstan, um, Turkmenistan, et cetera, and then uh, later into the Arabian Peninsula, I realized that I was always traveling to desert places and always sort of being drawn to the political questions about deserts. Uh, and this this is what then sort of led me to start thinking about the political aspects of deserts and uh, raised a lot of questions for me about how different deserts of the world are connected because I started to see these little, little threads of connection coming up um, over 10, 15 years of doing research as a geographer. Uh, And then it really got interesting when I started to see very direct historical connections between my hometown and and home, Arizona, um, and the Arabian Peninsula, where I've I've spent most of the last 10 years doing my research. 
I think it's really important that we start with this idea of the political lives of deserts, um, especially hearing the term geography. Uh, some less familiar with social science might think, oh, well, that's not about politics. That's about plants and water and rain or lack thereof. Um, but this idea of the political lives of deserts really makes quite a lot of sense in the context of the book and really in a lot of ways opens up broader questions. So can you tell us a bit about what you mean by the political lives of deserts and how we might see them? Yeah, absolutely. The The, the desert is, it's not something that has an essence, right? We would like to think that there's a kind of abstract definition of a desert. And, and sometimes I try to, <laughs> I try to reach for some of those definitions myself, uh, arid landscapes, water scarcity, other, other um, sort of extremes as compared to uh, other landscapes. But of course, every, every desert is, is very unique. I, in, we also understand then that the political decisions that people make in living in these de- deserts is also going to be very different. Um, and so for, for my conceptualization of uh, the sort of political lives of deserts in the book and more broadly in my research in political geography, it's to think about uh, how, how it is that people sort of political geography for me always put people at the center uh how people make sense of deserts how they interact with deserts the kind of decisions uh that that uh are shaped by the the choices and the material resources of deserts uh that that I think we often can miss um but of course as I said growing up growing up in Arizona and having seen the way that water decisions are so intensely political uh, in Arizona today, as much as when when I was um, a, a child living there, these these sorts of questions about the resources and resource limitations are often at the center of of deserts. But there's also opportunities of deserts. And this is really what got me excited in writing the book is to see how different actors, whether they were scientists or politicians or others who could kind of make desert science and arid lands science as a specialization that then created other political opportunities. And those were the really, really interesting connections that you started to see um, these early, early settlers in Arizona making with the Middle East saying, oh, well, we have this common desert experience and using that um, desert story to build bridges, political, diplomatic bridges between different places uh, and, and the desert in that sense becomes quite political. Before we get to some of those bridges and links, um, I wanted to ask a bit more about kind of you've mentioned a few times now your childhood in Arizona and how that's influenced your thinking. And I was struck in the book that you talk about your kind of early romance with the desert, your pride in being from this area as being an achievement. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I I remember when uh, when I was in oh, I I don't know it was elementary school, and we had uh, in our creative writing classes we were told we should we needed to go write poems about the desert, and we have to go sort of create this sort of romantic narratives through this you know forced forced child poetry and when you're eight years old or something <laughs> just generally pretty awful but it's 
still teaches you how to look at the desert in a particular way as a kind of romantic space and also to abstract our our role as inhabitants of this desert as as almost uh, separate from the landscape. And of course, in my growing up there and the, the the schools that I went to, I am not an indigenous person. Uh, I am a descendant of settlers who came to Arizona, uh, and as as a white settler, I was not being encouraged to reflect on that history in writing the poetry about the the saguaro cactus or whatever it was, you know. Um, and so that that really painful history of uh, of Arizona colonization, the theft of the land and resources and the genocide of indigenous people uh, in this particular part of the country was something I was not encouraged to think about uh, as as a young person. And so as I sort of moved through my geography career, I also, I had always been doing research internationally. I hadn't really been doing research domestically within the United States. Uh, And so when I started to think about all of these questions about colonialism, colonialism and uh, indigenous displacement in many other parts of the world, I had not been forced to reckon with how that was actually part of my childhood as well. Uh, And so I think for for me, the book uh, and telling the story of Arizona's colonization was an important important step for me, both intellectually, but also personally, to deal with that colonial history and to really face head on that, that challenge of how you how you accept your place in this history, but sort of refuse what I I talk about, this sort of ventriloquism of being a descendant of empire, that it is speaking through me. um, But once you recognize that it's speaking through you, you can do something to change that narrative and you don't need to be ventriloquized in that way. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's really helpful context to have these ideas of political lives of deserts, um, kind of where you're coming from, to then understand this history that, um, as you've just explained to us, kind of isn't usually taught, isn't usually examined. Um, So going back kind of chronologically towards the beginning of the history that you tell us in the book, um, this idea of kind of creating a myth in a way of what is happening in Arizona. Um, You talk about a transition between sort of what's actually happening of conquest and empire to these mythological ideas of like the American frontier and it's like the biblical old world and exploration or all sorts of things. Um, That's obviously a really interesting kind of process that seems to be happening very much on purpose. And you talk about one of the ways that this process is being enacted is through literal camels. <laughs> How and why do camels end up in Arizona in the 1800s? Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually a story that not that many people uh, know about. I suppose some people might know about the camels that, that were sent to Australia because Australia still has those camels. Um, but this is, uh, th- this is a story that uh, it, it sort of caught my attention much later in life as well. Uh, but in short, the um, that the U.S. the U.S. government took control of this huge swath of territory uh, after the Mexican-American War, and this ended up giving uh, much of what we now understand to be the desert 
parts of the U.S. to the United States. Uh, but so this was around uh, 1848. And the U.S. government didn't really know how to control this land, though, because they they didn't necessarily have experiences with moving through desert landscapes, how to deal with water limited um, environments and moving incredibly important piece here, their animals and the pack animals through this landscape. Um, and so it was it was very difficult for the army to set up uh, different military outposts, et cetera, et cetera, to, to sort of establish U.S. control here. And the pack animals that they were using were actually costing the army a huge amount of money because they'd have to feed them. They'd have to figure out other ways to get them water. Uh, and this, this was just becoming r- ridiculously expensive and, and unreasonable. So a few a, a few sort of proponents of this project to to introduce camels came along, uh, and a few of them had had experience fighting in um, in the Ottoman Wars, and so with that they had seen how camels were used in the Middle East. Um, but they also knew that Americans in general, when they imagine the Middle East, they imagine the sort of biblical narratives where there's those little like images of the um, of the three wise men coming to bring gifts for baby Jesus, they're accompanied by camels or they're riding on camels. Uh, So this imagination of the camel in the Middle East is quite fixed in the American imagination already at this time. And so this combination of the the sort of biblical imaginary and some people with practical experience of fighting wars in the Middle East, uh, they came together to say, look, let's try out bringing camels to to the U.S. uh, in order to um, basically see if if we can make this colonization project more efficient. Uh, The camels didn't need you didn't need to pack any feed for the camels uh, so they could they could just browse on any of the um, vegetation that they were, they were passing by, et cetera, and they could carry just huge amounts of, of weight uh, that mules or what other, whatever other animals they had couldn't. So this there was this um, sort of campaign for some years. Eventually, Jefferson Davis, who was at the time Secretary of War, uh, approved this project and got a sort of congressional appropriation for setting up this mission to go basically collect a bunch of different camel varieties from around the Middle East uh, to send them on a ship and uh, get them back to the United States. And so these camels uh, were, they, they arrived in the mid 15, uh, the mid, sorry, the mid 1800s, uh, mid 1850s is what I want to say, mixing, mixing the numbers up there. Sorry about that. Um, so they arrive and after, after a bit of time, they eventually get, get a few camel experiments, which is called the Camel Corps, uh, to try out moving uh, material and other things, basically from where they landed in Texas all the way to California. Uh, and they, they were sort of lauded as this wonderful wonderfully successful experiment because of course they they could carry huge amounts of weight um, but they they also had their enemies <laughs> and once the Civil War broke out uh, the the project was discontinued but there they did they, they didn't you know they, they didn't want to keep them within the army ranks uh, and, and many of the many of the people in the army didn't didn't like working with them and in fact didn't know how to work with them so at the same time that the government had 
had um, sent this boat to collect a number of these different animals from from different ports in the Middle East. Uh, they also picked up a handful of people that were called cameleers, and they came over with the camels and helped uh, helped do deal with the deal with managing the animals on these treks that they did. Well, that's a fascinating bit of showing both the early links between Arizona and kind of the region construed as the Middle East. Um, and also, yeah, the camels. What happened to the camels? Mm-hmm. I have all these questions yeah. now. Australia, as you said, <laughs> still has theirs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they, uh, as I said, they, they never really were very popular in the sense of being used as a as an animal that could um, that could carry materials, for example, uh, but they where, where they were popular was a sort of um, early fantasy site. So you could you could definitely see in the early newspaper reporting, uh, which which were really quite fun to read uh, about how the camels were were read and talked about as as this really um, exotic thing that that people would come and gawk at. And so a handful of them went to circuses or other of these traveling um these traveling entertainment displays in i think they mostly stayed concentrated in the southwest uh but a handful of others were used in other types of projects so uh edward beale was one of the one of the u.s government officials who really took charge of the camels afterwards and he used them for a project of surveying the u.s mexico border uh so they were used in that and then a, a handful of others were kept, as I understood from um, the, the other materials I read, by one of the cameliers. Hi Jolly was his name. He's the most famous of the cameliers. And he stayed and settled in Arizona uh, and, and continued, as I understood, to use the camels in a variety of different ways and for, for longer treks around the state. Uh, he, was, he served as a, as a government scout and delivered U.S. mail and other things. Um, Whether he was delivering mail on camels, I actually don't know, but it's nice to think about. (laughs) It is. And in a lot of ways, I think that sets us up. In some ways, it's kind of, it's obviously unknown history, right? It's not a story many people are familiar with, but it does fit into this idea of kind of empire and conquest, that it's about territory, that it's about war, um, that it's about kind of domination. You show in the book that conquest and empire is actually a lot more than that that it goes beyond kind of some amount of war and violence, um, that there's other sorts of institutions and government policy that kind of cement those initial aspects, for example, higher education. Um, And in Arizona, this is really obviously quite a key part of sort of cementing U.S. control over it. So can you tell us about these colonial connections between higher education and kind of the desertness of Arizona? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think it's a great it's a great point about um, about the way that we typically imagine empire and colonization through this um, idea of of violence. And of course, it is violent. But in in all of my other research, I've sort of had a, a, a rather different piece of my research, which is not entirely disconnected. But in my in my 
practical approach to things it is, uh, which is on authoritarianism. And one of the things that we also often think about authoritarian governments is that they are violent and that there's a sort of assumption about that. But authoritarian governments are very good at enticing and seducing people into their projects. Uh, and so with with this, you have a similar type of, of um, questions that you can ask about colonial regimes. How do they entice and seduce people into supporting what is ultimately uh, a, a very violent, extractive operation of taking over the land of, of other people. And so one of the things that, that you see very early on in the history of the United States is that this colonial project has had very deep, close ties with higher education. Um, so this this sort of spin, spins out in a number of different ways. If, if, uh, um, if listeners have uh, have encountered, I, I hope they have, uh, the High Country News Land Grab University report that came out in March 2020. This this uh, is, is a fantastic article with accompanying data that shows how different universities in the United States, what we now call the land grant universities, how they were given um, land, public lands, uh, through the Morrill Act in the 1860s. And this land allowed them to basically begin their uh, endowments. And they, they were essentially given this land, which they which had been appropriated or stolen or illegitimately gotten uh, from indigenous communities all around the United States. Uh, and so most of the big universities in the U.S. are built, their, their initial wealth uh, is built on uh, the th- this land uh, that that was taken from indigenous communities. So this this history is something that many people already sort of know, but it doesn't just stop there, right? It's not like the universities get this money and get the land. Some of them continue to hold it. And then that's that's kind of the end of their, their entanglement with the colonial history. It actually goes much deeper. And in the case of Arizona, where uh, University of Arizona is the land grant university. It's the original university of the state. Uh, they 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 did profit from the Morrill Act in a number of ways, uh, but they they had many other sort of entry points to this land grant system. And the first one was actually that they the regents realized that they could uh, take advantage of what was called the Hatch Act. And the Hatch Act was in addition to the original Moral Land Grant Act. And the Hatch Act gave land-grant colleges extra money if they started an agricultural research station. And so the regents figured out that, well we don't have enough money to get, get the, the university up and running. They were struggling to finish the first building. Uh, but if we get the Hatch Act money, then we, can, then we can set up an agricultural experiment station and we can finish uh, and we can prob- properly open the university doors uh, and, and start admitting students. And so it was with this, actually this entry point with the Hatch Act and the agricultural experiment station that they immediately started by thinking about how could the University of Arizona contribute to uh, the colonization project of the state of Arizona uh, through agriculture, 
Because at this point already in the in the mid 1800s, it was already clear that agriculture was one of the big ways that they were going to try to recruit new settlers to the state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this this was kind of a terrifying prospect for the white settlers that they wanted to get from the East Coast to move to Arizona, because this is a totally foreign desert landscape. Uh, so essentially, they are able very early on to to position themselves, the University of Arizona, so I mean by they, uh, the University of Arizona researchers are able to position themselves as experts in desert farming, and then to use that as a way to help recruit East Coast white settlers to move to the state, um, and I and I really should underscore here. I really do mean white settlers. Um, one of the big challenges or concerns of the boosters within the state. So this the uh, well at that point it was only a territory. Uh, those those political leaders and other sort of cultural leaders in the state who wanted Arizona to become a state, to become acknowledged as a state, um, they knew that one of the big challenges they were facing in Washington, D.C. was that Arizona was not considered to be white enough, uh, that the populations were, um, that they had too many Mexicans, too many Spaniards, too many in, in, uh, indigenous people, etc. And so the only way that they thought they could get uh, a statehood, recognized statehood, which they eventually did get in 1912, uh, was by recruiting more white settlers. Uh, and so this this was really quite important for them that they, they, they were, this was a racial project as much as it was uh, an agricultural project uh, that they wanted to set themselves up as experts with a sort of modern scientific approach to the desert environment uh, that would allow these, these settlers from the East Coast to move and imagine making making a, a wealthy future for themselves there in Arizona. Uh, so that was, yeah, the, the sort of auspicious, if you want to call it that way, I would call it maybe inauspicious start to the University of Arizona. Thank you for explaining that. I think the particular fact of kind of oh, wait, hang on, we're trying to do a university. We don't have quite enough money. Let's make a research station. Get yeah. funding that way. And then, oh, wait, do we actually have a research station? Hmm. <laughs> yes, we should bake you know, one. <laughs> well, and it's so funny to read. Oh gosh, I just loved reading these these uh, materials in the archives. I was laughing constantly. But yeah, they they didn't. They actually didn't have any professors on faculty at that point. So the first person they hired was somebody just to lead this ag experiment station. Because when they applied for the government money for it, they just like randomly put down the only regent who had a college degree who was a lawyer. He had nothing to do with agriculture. But yeah, let's throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. <laughs> well, it clearly stuck enough that the University of Arizona was founded and this agricultural focus actually was enough of a thing that other governments turn up, like, you know, Saudi Arabia, um, and goes, hey guys, you know about deserts. Uh, come help us? I mean, Saudi Arabia's been around for a while, even if not as a modern country, certainly desert expertise. So what exactly did governments like Saudi Arabia want from people like the University of Arizona? And did they get it? Yeah, so there's there's quite a bit of uh, uh, quite a bit of history that goes into producing that that uh, Saudi connection, but which I'll shorten to basically just say that uh, the 
I, I wouldn't say that the, that the Saudis came to Arizona first, but rather that Arizona came to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and this helped set up that relationship. So there was one um, there was one really important actor who helped build this connection with Arizona and Saudi Arabia. And his name was Carl Twitchell. Uh, and Twitchell was a trained geologist, uh, but he had actually spent his early career in the 19-teens working in the copper mines in Arizona. Uh, and he then from Arizona, he went to the Arabian Peninsula. He was working uh, there for the, for this one American company, and in in short order, he met the the original Saudi king, um, the, the the first king uh, Abdulaziz or Ibn Saud, as how you might might have seen his name. Um, so he became an advisor to Ibn Saud, and what he saw very quickly was that Ibn Saud really liked the connections that Twitchell would make with Arizona and sort of explaining, oh, this is how they did it here, and this is how you could do it here in Saudi Arabia. Um, and so he he sort of helped promote this relationship and imagining that Arizona was kind of the, the exemplar for the Saudis to follow, because Twitchell, when he was there in the 19-teens, he has seen the result of a lot of this early agricultural development that that had become a focus within um, within the the development of the state and the sort of colonial project there. And so uh, he he was successful enough and got the Saudi king to send him to do a kind of reconnaissance mission in Arizona. This is also quite a quite a funny set of journals to read, uh, and and to then report back to the king. And eventually, he uh, manages to Twitchell manages to get the U.S. government to fund uh, some what what he calls the Saudi agricultural missions. Uh, which is basically Carl Twitchell and two of his friends uh, from soil conservation that are going to basically do a tour of Saudi agriculture and, uh, and, and promote this new sort of story about how the Saudis can develop their agriculture. The follow-on to this, and this was the sort of big, important 1942 Saudi agricultural mission, the follow-on to this was uh, that Carl Twitchell managed to convince the State Department, the U.S. State Department, to fund a second mission, which involved sending Arizona farmers to Arizona, uh, sorry, sending Arizona farmers to Saudi Arabia uh, and to help there set up uh, a, a big agricultural project that had been a, a favorite spot of the king. And so I think it's it's what I found so interesting about this story, and of course there's many, many threads I can spin out if you're, if you're interested, um, but what I found fascinating about this particular story is, is that it by just tracing the the sort of movement of some of these guys like Twitchell, you start to see how their sort of specialization in the desert becomes something they learn how to sell. And they get very good at selling this arid lands expertise and realizing any type of project that they want through claiming their their special knowledge of the desert. And once they're able to do that, they can reap pretty enormous profits. Uh, and, and that can work at the university level. It can work at the level of these individual entrepreneurs like Twitchell, or it can work at the level of the governments who then sort of realize, oh, hey, we can capitalize on this too. We can get 
in the good graces with the Saudi the Saudi king by building his farm and then allowing us to use um, their airfields. That was what they were after in the 40s, at least. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, can you tell us a bit more about these, kind of what they got from this? Like, I, I guess the questions running through my mind are, how specialized was their knowledge? <laughs> um, and kind of what were they trying to sell it for? Yeah, you know, I think if every every one of these different actors that I that I traced in, in doing the research for the book had very different motivations. I would say, um, with somebody like Twitchell, Twitchell, <clears throat> he absolutely loved just being around the king. He loved advertising the fact that he had these royal associations. This made him feel important. Um, but he also he also had invested in Saudi mining operations. That, that was like his personal agenda. So this was his si- sort of side hustle in a, in, a, in a way. Of course, I didn't have the term for it then. Um, but that, that was where he was really trying to make investments. And so selling this kind of project of getting in the king's good graces and showing himself to be an entrepreneur who could help him realize these connections with the U.S. government, that was then sort of understood as something that would help him in his personal scheme to enrich himself through investing in Saudi mining. Uh, so that that was maybe one way to think about it for him. Um, there were others. There, there was a whole sort of story that I tell in the book about date palms and uh, uh, palm production, date production in Arizona. And one of the big proponents for that, Robert Forbes, who was the, one of the, the big um, leaders of this at, at the University of Arizona, he just was obsessed with palm trees. <laughs> and he he went on to con- continue so, so much of his career, even after he left Arizona, to promoting date palm cultivation. He moved to Egypt. He was promoting palm schemes there, whatever it was, you know? And I think, sure, he did end up knowing a lot about palms. Um, but but for him it was it was just a kind of personal passion, I would say, more than more than anything else. Others that I trace in the book even a bit later um, in the 1960s and 70s, there's one person uh, that's involved in a project, a University of Arizona researcher, um, Carl Hodges, he gets involved in, in this big uh, th- this big project that I discussed in, in the United Arab Emirates today, or what was then the, the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. He was also just a, a sort of in in it all for the 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 ego and the uh, the image of being associated with the the sheikh of Abu Dhabi and and having all of these sort of possibilities for personal enrichment as well and uh, it was it, it was a sort of financial obsession maybe more than it was a scientific obsession. Thank you for giving us that kind of illustration of the ranges of motivations and sort of what they brought to us. I think it helps understand um, kind of the different things going on. And in some ways, 
to me, that makes it make more sense that there were so many of these connections and entanglements. If there was only one reason to do it, you wouldn't necessarily see this kind of tapestry almost of interactions. Um, but because of all those different goals, it's kind of like, oh, well, that I can see why this guy would look at the other one and be like, well, he's doing something different. I may as well have a go with the thing I want. Exactly, you know, and I and I think this was also something that I really had to to reflect on carefully with my own role as a researcher in in this particular space because what you could what I could always see these guys doing because they were all men um, I could always see them uh, sort of taking their Arizona or U.S. Southwest expertise and saying, look, this makes me an expert here in your desert. And this then allows me to justify the kind of extractive or exploitative project that I want to promote. And myself coming from Arizona, I was very wary of, okay, what does that mean for me as a scholar, as somebody who is doing research in the Arabian Peninsula? I don't ever want to claim that my knowledge of the desert is is somehow superior or endows me with the right to, to claim extractive uh, relations with another context. But of course, within academia, we, we all sort of have that concern and that that anxiety about our research being extractive uh, so how how to get around that how to think critically about that uh, was was something of a challenge for me and and again I think that was piece of, a piece of why it was so important for me to go back and tell this story of Arizona's colonization and to recognize that this this extractive um, element of higher education it was was always woven into the project of colonization and that that hasn't necessarily gone away even if we say oh well I'm not I'm not a col- I, I, I'm not actively colonizing this place you know that there's a still this sort of imperial history that's interwoven into our entire existence as academics well and i'd love to kind of pick up on that idea of well maybe this isn't something that impacts us now because in the book the examples you've talked about so far we've talked about kind of the 1800s we've talked a bit about sort of the 1940s um but it doesn't stop there, right? You talk about the ideas and institutions of arid empire continue and continue evolving even during decolonization, even during the Cold War. So what did that kind of evolution look like? Well, I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows in, in lots of curious ways. And sometimes there's repetitions and sometimes there's new um new ideas and approaches that 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 intervene and and come up as as a surprise if you will um but i think i i think the 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 shift that we really see in the in the u.s approach to empire is is around um the end of the end of World War Two, right? The U.S. then enters into this this very different geopolitical environment, or starts to shape a new geopolitical environment. Um, and a big part of a, a big part of the U.S. narrative around the Cold War uh, and fall, and the sort of 
decolonizing movement after World War II was that the U.S., even if people want to call it imperial, <laughs> it was not going to be imperial like those empires that, that were focused on territorial control. Rather, that sort of influence was going to be something that was built through science and benevolence and human development and all of those sorts of lovely feel-good narratives that we're so familiar with today, uh, the sort of developmentalist approach. Uh, and, and so I think this, this shift is then also something that, that the U.S. Um, actors and institutions had been really crafting in its domestic colonial project, right, of learning how to use this story about science and, and higher education and, and modern development and uh, advancement of society through through technology and, and science. So this then starts to get imagined as something that the U.S. can can export abroad and in exporting that you're exporting your influence you're you're casting that that global influence through these scientific networks uh, and so in in my research for the book I really I really saw how this worked with the um, with initially the efforts of the US government to help uh, support this farming projects in Saudi Arabia uh, but also then with the um, the other project that I ta- that I mentioned already about the United Arab Emirates what was then the the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, uh, where it was very clear, based on the funding organizations and others, that this idea that American scientists were going to come and help you develop your desert landscape and and promote these modern greenhouses uh, was was something that was celebrated as uh, a a marker of American uh, ingenuity and American technology, that this this big focus on transforming landscapes through science and engineering uh, was something that these early American entrepreneurs and scientists will really wanted to promote in the Middle East. But of course, in the Arabian Peninsula, this was always deeply connected with oil extraction and the oil industry. And I don't talk that much about the oil industry in, in the book for various reasons, including that <laughs> a lot of people do when they write about the Arabian Peninsula. And I've always tried to, to look at it uh, sideways, if you will. Um, but you can see that a lot of these other scientific projects are paired then with this bigger effort to get uh, to, to get in in good graces with the governments or to, to set up favorable deals in the pursuit of yeah setting up setting up good oil related relationships um, and even of course in the the um, the Saudi farm that I talk about in the 1940s it actually was managed by Saudi what we know, the company we now know as Saudi Aramco but back then it was it was the uh, Arabian American Oil Company and this this farming project was always connected to to the oil industry so there's there's lots of ways that you see that but with the new uh, sort of American order after World War II uh, these these changes do also enter in those relationships between these two desert places that I track one of the relationships I'd love for you to tell us a bit about is um, staying on the Arabian Peninsula, but moving away from Saudi Arabia. Um, the partnership between 
uh, the Americans we've been talking about, primarily in and around the University of Arizona, and the country that is now obviously the United Arab Emirates. Um, what was that sort of partnership look like? And perhaps to this larger point of the politics of it, um, why has that partnership kind of purposely been forgotten? Mm. Yeah, th- this one was was really quite quite interesting for me because in the last years I've spent most of my time uh, doing my international research in the UAE, and when I first when I first heard about this project uh, connecting Arizona and uh, it was a project that was funded by the University of Arizona uh, in the in in Abu Dhabi. And when I first heard about this, I couldn't find anybody in the UAE who had even heard of it. Uh, and then I started to, that I contacted the the UAE National Archives and they were able, it took them quite a long time, but they were able to pull up some documents and some materials from this. Um, but it it had really been a history that, that had been forgotten for, for a number of reasons. But essentially what it was, was uh, that there's, so Abu Dhabi, there's kind of the, the, the city, the capital city now of the UAE, Abu Dhabi, has a main Abu Dhabi island. And then there are a few sort of peripheral islands. And one of those peripheral islands is called Sadiat. Uh, and Sadiat is where, if anybody has heard about the New York University Abu Dhabi, it's located on Sadiat now. Uh, there's a number of other big projects. You may have also heard about the Louvre Abu Dhabi. That's on Sadiat. The new Guggenheim that they're building, that's on Sadiat. Um, <laughs> all these really big prestige projects are on Sadiat. So in 1960s, um, basically this island was completely undeveloped. Um, but the uh, the the ruling the, the ruling emir of Abu Dhabi in around 1966 heard about this project that the University of Arizona researchers had uh, set up in Mexico, just across the across the border in, in Puerto Penasco, Mexico, uh, which was a combined greenhouse and desalination facility. And it was print. Uh, Time magazine had uh, had had this big sort of feature on it, and so supposedly he had seen this and said, "I want one of those." And eventually, they sort of he was able to recruit the Arizona researchers to come over and 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 set it up, and they set this up on Sadiat Island, and so this became this this really big project started in in the late sixties and ran into the mid seventies. Um, it was it, it was it was something that was very successful from the from the Emirati perspective at the time. Um, when Muhammad Ali came to visit Abu Dhabi, he got a fancy tour of the site and the the ruling um, uh, Sheikh Sheikh Syed. He was very proud to take all of his elite top visitors to to see this sort of miracle greenhouse that he had built on on Sadiat. So it, at that time, it was it was something celebrated, um, but eventually things sort of shifted, and modernity didn't really seem like a bunch of greenhouses on this island. <laughs> and so, uh, I 
I really struggled to find any definitive answer on this, but as best I could tell from a number of different actors, was that the government agenda for for Sadiach simply changed. And you can see now that it's all these other high-profile projects, um, the university, uh, arts and culture, and uh, really, really expensive housing and, and hotels and other things like that. So the, the agenda for this particular island shifted from the Emirati perspective. Um, and from the American perspective, I mean, it was it was a, a really controversial project. Uh, I struggled actually more in Arizona getting the archival documents than I struggled with the UAE. The Emiratis were happy to give me anything they could find. The Arizonans, not at all. Um, and this was because there was a lot of illegal things that were going on with uh, with the farm and the funding for it, et, et cetera. So that, that's, that's maybe a, a separate book that I need to write in and of itself. Uh, but in any case, it was it was something that they they also didn't necessarily want to advertise as a big um, as a big success in a sense uh, because it, it led to so many complicated issues and uh, as, as I said already illegal activities on the part of the uh, of the University of Arizona administration and so I think for that reason they didn't necessarily want to celebrate it or push it uh, as well but it, uh, it it sort of lives on in a number of different ways if you sort of think about the project like uh, if, if Listeners have heard of Biosphere 2, the sort of fanciful uh, project in Arizona, part which was started by the University of Arizona, supported by the University of Arizona from the beginning in the 1980s and 90s, uh, the sort of enclosed um replica of earth but which which is biosphere one biosphere two this closed system thing where they had these human trials in the 1990s um some of the work on that was developed by the same people who did this big greenhouse project in um in abu dhabi and so there's there's a number of ways that it sort of spins out but different actors for different reasons didn't necessarily want that want that history to be advertised or they didn't celebrate it in the same way as maybe it was celebrated and in the in the early 70s for example given that that kind of brings us up nicely in a lot of ways to the present of the connections of arid empire that are still happening um could you tell us more about where with what we might see arid empire today yeah i, I mean i think you can I think you can see it in lots of different ways and lots of different places. And and one of the reasons that I would say I um, I was very careful in limiting myself to to just Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula is because I knew that this story of empire is so 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 much bigger. Um, but that these were the two deserts that I know best and that I've I've spent so many years now thinking about the connections between. Um, so this is this is simply to say that there's plenty of other ways another scholar could write a story about arid empire in Israel, for example, or there's actually some, some uh, wonderful young scholars and others who are looking at connections between Israel and uh, California. Uh, there's a number of other ways that you can think about arid empire in Northern Africa 
all across Northern Africa, um, other parts of the Middle East. So many of these in these these relationships that I'm talking about in terms of science and arid land science, uh, higher education, water, energy systems, all of these questions are incredibly relevant for for so many different desert places. Uh, and sadly, of course, the the empire piece is it's something that that will not necessarily escape us. And I think it's it's maybe wishful to think about a post-colonial world um, because we are not in a post. Uh, we, we continue to live in a system of, of imperialism and colonization. I'm sitting in the United States right now, and the land that I'm sitting on is Haudenosaunee land in upstate New York. This is this is colonized land. Uh, so we can't necessarily escape that in a way. Uh, but this this is something that you, you can educate people about and you can get them to think about differently. The piece that I worry about actually the most uh, in terms of thinking about the future of arid empire is the way that in science fiction and all sorts of other ways that people are today being taught to think about Mars and outer space is that it works through the same tropes of colonizing the desert that, 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 that we see in, in real life deserts and, and on, on this world deserts. Uh, so when you, when you look at, in, in the book, I talk a bit about Dune and uh, Star Wars, but, but plenty of other science fiction things we, we can imagine uh, how, the, how these desert planets are imagined to be spaces of human colonization and human conquest. Uh, and this, this sort of imagination is, is also amplified in, in the way that Elon Musk, for example, talks about um, about Mars and the way that then these the sort of quote unquote billionaire space race is unfolding, it's it it has this detrimental effect in my mind in the way that it teaches people to romanticize colonization in 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 one hand, uh, but also to use that romanticization in a way that deflects attention and pulls attention away from the fact that there these choices of investing in um, yeah in in these schemes to colonize Mars which I'm sorry to say is not going to happen um, <laughs> in my very blunt uh, direct approach to thinking about this but those are billions of dollars that could be going toward poverty reduction, toward education of young people, toward um, promoting social justice and decolonizing um, settler states. There's so many other uses of that of that funding that, that are here and present and real uh, that, that can easily sort of get shunted aside and pushed out of our, our focus if we fixate on these, these possibilities of colonizing Mars. So in, in this sense, I, I think that there is going to be a lot more critical attention needed, and I hope that the idea of arid empire helps bring some, some attention to uh, what that looks like in these conversations that we have about, um, yeah, about space exploration in the future. 
thank you for think, helping us think about that and connect those dots because I think it is an important thing to be critical of. Um, and that leads me only to my last question, which is that uh, if the future does not include colonizing Mars, um, fair enough. Would you mind telling us a little bit on the theme of future now that this book is out? Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, I I have always about 15 different projects working on. I, I have, I've always said that I've, I love being a geographer because I can basically do anything and, and, and uh, call it geography. Uh, but spinning out from this particular project, I'm getting uh, I'm, I'm getting a new project started about the the broader and deeper history of science diplomacy between the U.S. and the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, so this this case of connections between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula was was a way to keep myself focused, but to also think more broadly about um, about the desert. But in this, I could really see how these imaginations of diplomacy working through scientific channels and scientific channels, including universities, but also private companies like Aramco, which I mentioned before. I mean, Aramco, the oil company, is funding lots of scientific research. <laughs> uh, so these kinds of connections um, between the between these uh, two uh, places is something that I'm I'm really keen to to develop in a broader sense not just looking at Arizona universities, but at the U.S. university system more broadly and other bigger corporate actors uh, and, and telling that in a historical sense so that we can then maybe have a better context to understanding these university relationships that the, Uni the United States has with the Arabian Peninsula, uh, which can often be quite controversial. So there's a bunch of branch campuses in Qatar uh, at Education City, uh, American branch campuses there, as well as New York University in Abu Dhabi and, and a handful of others that are operating in the Arabian Peninsula. And many people in the United States uh, academic system are quite critical of these. And I know that the UK has a number as well. Um, and, and I think that the home the home campuses tend to be quite, um, quite skeptical of these projects. But it's almost as if they've just sort of appeared out of nowhere. And this this idea is simply wrong when you look at the at the historical trajectory here. So that project is is trying to think more broadly about um, broadly spatially and uh, temporally about those connections between the u s and um, and the Arabian Peninsula in terms of science and scientific exchanges. So that's, that's the one I'm most excited about getting going on here soon. Well, I think based on that explanation, it's very clear why a lot of people um, listening to this are probably going to be interested in that as well. Um, but while you work on it, they can, of course, read the book we've been discussing titled Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. It's just come out. Um, Natalie, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and time with us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. I appreciate it.